You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Kunahiri Northern Light United Church on December 12, 2023. The MC for the evening was Jeffrey Smith, and the host was Representative Sarah Hannon. The theme was Changing Your Mind. The profit recipient for the event was Juno Montessori School. Live music was performed by Quentin Woolman Morgan. We have a first-time storyteller tonight, so you're going to be a generous audience at Laugh at All Her Jokes. Um, Ellen Winters Johnson is excited because she thinks that all three people that she knows in Juno are probably here in the audience. She's really moved here recently, and the last time she got her hair cut, she was still living in an RV in Montana. Ellen grew up in Iowa, but spent her summers in college working backcountry in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota as a volunteer with the U.S. Forest Service. There she developed both a lifelong love of wilderness adventures and the unfortunate habit of always over-preparing for wilderness adventures. Ellen, welcome to the stage. I woke on our last morning in the Southern California desert and knew immediately that the sun was way too high in the sky and there was no way that I would make it to the trailhead before the heat of the day, let alone make it off the trail as is wise to do when hiking in the desert. The one thing that I'd wanted to do for the whole two weeks we were there was to hike out into the desert and see the palm oases. I imagined this experience would be kind of like hiking through a lot of harsh, hot sameness to reach a little place where a tiny seed, unlike any of the plants for miles around, had connected with a small water source to create this anomaly of softness and abundance in a place where few people went, which sounds pretty great, and I was really sad about missing it. It sucks so much to wake up sad. But then I decided that it was still technically morning and I had a lot of day left. I could make it anything I wanted it to be. So if trying to do everything the right way was meaning that I was getting nothing done at all, then perhaps I just needed to lean into it and do everything wrong. Because for the previous two weeks, I'd wake up each morning and think, well, I don't have the proper nutrition, or my my clothes aren't clean, or when was the last time I checked my first aid kit? And I'd sit by the pool, secure in the knowledge that I'd have another opportunity. Well, deciding to break all the rules was a joyful moment for me. It was like the weight of all that perfectionism was just lifted. I grabbed whatever I could off the top of the hamper. I'm throwing clothes on, putting shoes on as I'm headed down my front steps uh, of my RV and downloading a map as I'm reaching my car. I stopped at the gas station. I bought a candy bar, one bottle of water, and some sunscreen and made it to the trailhead where I saw two signs. The first one said, past this point, no water, no shade, no cell service. And the second one said, caution, rattlesnake habitat. So this is perfect. I, I'm doing everything wrong. I put my headphones in. I can't hear my surroundings. I'm doing everything you can do on a phone without actually having it connect to anything. I'm taking pictures. I'm taking notes, listening to music, despite the fact that my phone is my only source of navigation, my downloaded map, and I'm in an area unfamiliar to me. 
I walk for an hour and see nobody else, everyone else was smart enough to be off the trail by the heat of the day, and decide to take a break. I plop myself down right in the middle of the trail, something I would never on any other day do. So I'm still listening to music, doing things on my phone, completely unaware of the woman who approaches me from behind, until I hear a voice from right over my head say, are you okay? Are you safe? Do you need help? This is kind of a strong reaction. I think I'd be worried too if I ran into somebody in a dangerous environment that didn't look like they knew what they were doing and they were all alone. But this woman is really worried. So I decide to scan my body, see if she's cueing into something I'm not aware of yet before I respond. I look down and the first thing I notice is that the sunscreen I grabbed from the gas station is that mineral kind, the white greasy stuff, and it is streaked unevenly all over my skin. It's in my hair, it's on my phone, it's on my clothes. And speaking of my clothes, apparently what I grabbed off the top of the hamper was a formal men's collared dress shirt. And the long tails of the shirt are completely covering my booty shorts. Okay, this woman thinks I'm alone in the desert and not wearing pants. <laughs> so I jump up and, and reassure her, I, I'm dressed, I'm lucid, it's okay. She tries to get me to turn back, I explain about the palm oases, and she reluctantly lets me go with the parting advice that you should really carry a designated GPS unit. And she was totally right, I should have brought my designated GPS unit. So I walk another 20 minutes, and I finally reach a strand of three small palm trees. I look to my right, glorious palm trees. I look to my left, and there are identical barren red mountains off all the way out to the horizon. This is a special spot. And that's when I'm taking pictures like a crazy tourist of these three dinky little palm trees. The second and only other person I would run into in the desert all day approaches me. And my oracle says, if you like this, there's a whole valley of palms, just the next mountain over. You have to take a left, follow this trail, follow that trail, walk around the mountain. You're going to come down the palm valley. It's going to spit you out in a dry wash. And if you walk another mile or two, you should reach the ridge where your car is parked. And this is totally in keeping with my new philosophy. Yes, I should definitely follow the advice of a strange man I've met miles from anywhere to extend my four-mile hike to a 12-mile hike in the desert when I came prepared to hike about two, on the assumption that he does in fact know where I've parked my car, and how would he know that? I decide that if I'm making my hike that much longer, I need to start making smarter decisions. And so I take my headphones out. I'm going to need my downloaded map to make it out of this unfamiliar area. I check my battery, and it's not good. But I reason to myself that if I can make it to the halfway point of my mileage before I dip below the halfway point of my cell phone battery, then it totally makes sense to push forward through unfamiliar territory on the hopes that I'll still have a map rather than to retrace the steps of what I'm familiar with. And the only way I'm going to accomplish this is if I run. So I ran the last eight miles. 
Yeah. And without music in my ears, uh, my mind started to, to bring my own music in. For some reason, the song that popped into my head was this Euro dance song by these Dutch rappers, Stuffenschnapps by Lil Kleine and Ronnie Flex. And it has kind of a nice march beat. It's going with my feet. But what I can actually hear is just total silence for about an hour and a half of running. And then I reached the palm trees, and after nothing but the sound of my own footfalls and my imagined music, I can hear the wind in the leaves. And it's incredible, not just because I have so many endorphins going at this point, but because it stretches on for an entire mile. No, I can't stop to enjoy it. I'm still racing my battery. I run through the palm trees. I make it to the bottom where there's a dry wash, and I can indeed see a ridge where I think my car is parked at the end. I am noticing some, some danger signals. My lips are cracked. My calves are burning. I'm starting to feel a little bit confused. I'm starting to realize there's a reason I'm always more prepared than one bottle of water for a 12-mile run in the heat of the day in the California desert. But as I was approaching my car, I used the last 5% of my battery to listen to Stuffenschnapps, celebrating the fact that I had turned a, a potential sad loss into a wonderful memory. Our next storyteller is Ames Villanueva. Ames, a.k.a. pint-sized villain, is best known for her restaurants, prior restaurants, Gonzo and Black Moon Coven, specializing in holistic nutrition. In the shadows, she's a certified psychosynthesis life coach, trauma-informed movement and sound healing practitioner, as well as a trained death doula. She is finishing up an international chaplaincy program and is here to shed the light on the collective opening death and grief cafes with Joanna Goldman and asking the question, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? Please welcome Ames. I'm going to go ahead and take a second here and change this up now. How many of you have ever had a collective breath with as many people that I see out here? I only see like four, 13 people. So I'm going to have us go into a collective breath together just to ground me down and to have us here at this present moment together. So if you don't know how to breathe, for this, we're going to inhale through the nose, and then we're going to exhale everything out audibly with a sigh. So it'll sound like... <sighs> All right, you guys got it. You guys are breathing well. Let's take two more. Deep inhale through the nose. Exhale everything out. Let's do one more. Inhaling through. Exhale it all out, release. Thank you. Okay, so I'm not an astrologist by any means, but usually I know that the moon has given some sort of powers on certain times. So has Venus, and Venus has been the biggest catalyst this year for us as a collective. So if you can think back in your lives this year, what had happened at the end of March going into April, for me, I was going through figuring out if I wanted to be on TV. 
there were two different shows and the the part that had me going was I told myself I would expand and say yes more this year. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Let's do it. What had happened was when I was seeing them on Zoom, the first thing I was asked was not my name. It was, okay, Aim, so um, what makes you angry? Like, what gets you really riled up? And I looked at this man, and I was, I was like, are you... Is this a question to me? And I said, what's your name? And he was like, my name's Timothy. And I was like, okay, Timothy. Well, people named Timothy asking me what makes me angry is getting me angry. And everyone loved it. They, they thought that I was really feisty. And they thought that I could sell this brand. And I knew immediately what did I say yes to. As I was listening to them, they kept going on about, all right, in June, you're going to be filming, and then afterwards, you're going to be headed to the Midwest, and then you'll tape for a couple more months. And that sounded great, except that I have two kids, two dogs, two cats, a restaurant at this point still, so it just did not line up. And at the same breath, I felt like, wait a second, I'm going to be whatever narrative and whatever brand you guys want me to be. And having friends that are celebrity chefs, when I told them that I was doing this, they started laughing. Only because they were like, you are not going to like any of this, and you're basically selling your soul. So I said, okay, but maybe I, maybe I should. <laughs> maybe sell the soul. Let's do that. And so June happened, and I was out on Thane meditating, and the phone that I had with me that had all of the messages from all of the producers decided that it was going to go into sea. So High Tide took my phone, and that was the weekend where everybody was supposed to hear and finalize plans of what was to happen. I decided that in the middle of July, that I was not going to go to the Midwest. I was not going to be in LA taping at the end of June. I wanted to go to Mount Shasta and go to the Joshua Tree and ride horses. That was from a meditation, those two things, just to let you know. I've never been there until that point. And when I told them that I changed my mind, Timothy was angry. <laughs> he was mad. So, Venus, right? She comes back again at the end of July going into August. That, for me, was a huge pivotal moment because I came back into Juno, was behind the stove at Black Moon, cooking all of the things, and I decided that I needed to shift, and I didn't know what it was, but it wasn't this. At that point, I've been in the kitchen for a baker's dozen years. Something needed to change. And that change was, I was going to go meditate again. So I went out to Thane during the middle of service, and I had this epiphany. During that time, I was listening to Brown Noise on Spotify. You should check it out. But it went into a podcast called Ask a Mortician. When Ask a Mortician came on, Alua Arthur, who is a death doula in Los Angeles, was talking 
I knew immediately that there had to be a shift and that was part of it. When I went back to school that day, the question posed was, if you could do something for yourself when you were younger, what would it be? And for me, my first huge death happened when I was nine. And every year after, there was at least a dozen deaths. So I wanted to be able to talk about it and be there with people. What I've gathered from this and after doing the training is, I want to be able, if I have the privilege to have and be on a deathbed, to look at this list of things that I wish I did and have it be so short. So you guys have crossed out two of those things on my list. We did a collective breath together, and I'm here being vulnerable. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller is David Parrish. David is the 10th of 13 children born to his mother, Dorothy Parrish. He's the second son of Robert Lee and Dorothy, and this is his third trip to the mudroom stage. He's a lifelong learner and seeker after truth and finds that this format of sharing um, provides an opportunity like no other. As his recently deceased friend and Toastmaster mentor Jim Donahue said, a good speech consists of teaching, preaching, and good storytelling. David, hope to give you a David hopes to give us a little of each of those tonight. Okay. As I said, this is the third trip I've made to this mudroom stage, and I'm really grateful for it. I'm a lot weaker this time than I was the last time, and I regret that. But I've got my notes with me, which I know is against the rules, but <laughs> it took me 10 minutes to do the speech yesterday without the notes, so I figured I'd better do it. I have a difficult time changing my mind. My dad was a really stubborn man, and my mom was granite. <laughs> they were an amazing couple, and they were obstinate and difficult for me to live with as a child. But they did teach me what I know today about naivete and ignorance, which I embodied entirely whenever I graduated from high school. <laughs> I moved to Juneau from Minneapolis, where I was all conference football and was drafted or approached by several big colleges in the Midwest to play football. But I'm glad I didn't, <laughs> because Parkinson's has really claimed a big part of my consciousness. I fell whenever I was a year and a half old out of, off a windowsill at 3311 Douglas Highway and busted my skull and had fat extruding from my head. And I think that that probably affected my consciousness growing up. 
and whether it made me more naive or more violent, but I had plenty of each. My parents were as loving as they knew how to be. And I became a Christian whenever I was 12 years old. By the time I was 14, I was an agnostic. <laughs> because I couldn't comprehend the idea that a loving God could disregard billions of people just because they didn't claim Christ. The Buddhists, the Muslims, the Jews. So I became wayward for a while, even though I knew 300 hymn, hymns. I stayed that way until I entered college and came under the influence of Franklin Delano Dameron, who was a gray-eyed Cherokee Irishman with really short thumbs. He was really a character. He led me down the rosy path toward Charles McCoy, who was a prisoner on prisoner release at the university. And he worshiped Machiavelli. I didn't know what that meant until I sent him money for my lodging for my sophomore year at U of A. He used my money to rent a really nice little ranch-style place on 36th Avenue, close to the university, and turned it into a bordello. <laughs> and I stayed away because I didn't care for the clientele. So Chuck was quite a character. He had a really profound body. He was an athlete without any conditioning. He just used cocaine. He had cups of cocaine <laughs> in the bathroom, in the windowsill, and in the kitchen. And he would snort regularly. <laughs> So that accounted for the sweat that was on him whenever he came to the door the week before Thanksgiving. So he was quite a character himself. And whenever I came to the door on that Friday night before Thanksgiving, he came to the door wearing his black nylon shorts and nothing else. And it was then that I saw that he had six keloids on his chest an upper body, and they went in the size of nickels, and they came out the size of saucers. So his back was really scarred. And he was going to blow my head off and let, let me see what it was all about, but I avoided it and moved to Hawaii on Thanksgiving Day in 1971. So 
So life was interesting. And then the second time that I had the barrel of the gun put in my nose, it was done by Dennis Windred, who was the sergeant for the Juneau Police Department. And Dennis came to the hospital to pick me up and incarcerate me because I had taken LSD that I thought was bad and my hands were turning black in the cold. And I refused to go with Dennis to the jail. And he pulled out a can of mace and maced me in the eyes, the nose, and the mouth nine times. And I counted. And I took the can away from him and maced him in the eyes, the nose, and the mouth nine times as well. He wasn't used to being treated like that. So he pulled it 357 and aimed it at me, and I took the gun away from him, set it on the counter, and left. Went out under the snow-covered hillside by the uh, emergency room and was greeted by two six-foot, six-inch-tall detectives from the state troopers. And they stretched my neck and put handcuffs on me and threw me in the back of the patrol car. I immediately made my first phone call to Avram Gross, who at that time was the ACLU representative for the state of Alaska. He took my call and got me in front of Judge Thompson for the arraignment on Monday. And he got me off, instead of 15 years, I got off with 10 days in jail, and we changed case law in the state to where if a person comes in looking for help, medical help, they have to be helped before they're arrested. So that was good for me. <laughs> I wanted to get to the spiritual part of this because every time I was arrested, there was another consequence that I drew closer to the Lord. And I became a Baha'i six months after having Dennis put the gun to my head. And after, after Chuck McCoy put the gun to my head, I became a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist for my time in Hawaii. So I was making progress all the time <laughs> through the darkest moments. So I'm really grateful to the Creator for keeping me around. So thank you for your time and patience. Our next storyteller, and last before we take a brief intermission, is Jim Hammond. Jim was born and raised in the outskirts of New York City, and he spent his last, his first 33 years trying out new places to call home. Please welcome Jim to the stage. The big thing about my talk is when I'm done, you can have cookies. It's break time. So... I did move around a lot, and I was always looking for that perfect address, that perfect zip code. And back in 71, I thought I had found it in Prescott, Arizona. But if you're there, you have to call it Prescott, like in Biscuit. And uh, 
lived there for 10 years, and it was delightful. I mean, 12 inches of rain a year, 300 sunny days. People actually griped if we had two cloudy days in a row. I mean, this was ideal. Beautiful winters, snow on the, on the pines. But after 10 years and um, social changes where an ex-wife was driving my two-tone Chevy pickup and I'd moved from a three-bedroom house to a uh, studio apartment, I thought it was time for a change. And uh, a few years before that, uh, I had a, a camera store and studio in town and taught at the community college, that kind of thing, little jack-of-all-trades. Uh, a client had sent me to Alaska for a few weeks to work on a film, on a wildlife film. And I thought, well, if I've got to leave this perfect place, I might as well go to the next perfect place, and that would be Alaska. And uh, didn't know a thing about it, except for the two weeks I spent up by Denali. And so I got a list of all the school districts in Alaska. And at the time, there were 54 of them. So I started at A, ADAC and the rest, and called. And no one really had an interest in a photographer from Arizona. <laughs> And um, so I <clears throat> alluded to the fact that I would do other things. And I finally got to P, Pelican, you know, just 70 miles out on the coast there. And there was a new principal in town. Uh, the old one, unfortunately, had been a raging drunk. And so they fired him finally. And then the whole village felt bad about it, so they made him the mayor. <laughs> and then, uh, it's a village. That's how you work there. And... Um, so I finally got to Pease, and I'm talking to uh, this man's name is Ralph Allen, Dr. Allen, and I'm saying, uh, what do you need up there? I'm, I'm ready to leave Arizona. And he said, well, what can you do? I said, well, I call myself a shop teacher. I can coach football or track and field. And he goes, no, 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 it's Pelican. And he said, there are 40 kids here, K through 12, seven of them are in the high school, so forget the football thing. He said, what the school board would want, they want to have the kids wrestle because it's an individual sport. I, oh, man, I can't even, even I cannot fake my way through that. I do not know how to wrestle uh, in that scholastic manner. And he says, I really need to satisfy the board. It's my first year. Can you read a book about wrestling? When someone says that to you, you know they are as desperate as you are to get someone on the faculty. So I promised him, yes, I would read a book about wrestling, and he hired me over a phone. And uh, two weeks later, I wound up in Prescott. So I'd gone from 12 inches of rain in Prescott, Arizona, to 120 inches of rain in Pelican. It rained the first 28 days I was there, continually. But then the sun did come out in October, and it was as gorgeous as you can imagine. However, in December, the sun doesn't come up until 10 o'clock because of the mountains. It lies down in Lysiansky Inlet. And about 10 minutes after noon, the sun sets. So even though we're low latitude, just over 57 degrees latitude, we have two hours of sunlight during December. So it's really, really quite a change. And, you know, I thought this was pretty good. I got jobs on fishing boats, at which I was terrible. Um, I had uh, a number of hooks removed from different parts of my body because I'm the world's worst fisherman, but you're in Pelican. You fish. That's, that's what one does there. And so I was thinking after three years living on a town that is 12 feet wide, um, it's 12 feet wide. 
the boardwalk is 12 feet wide, and all the houses are attached to that. It's over tidal flats, of course, so, you know, everything's on stilts. And after three years of that, I thought, I'm going to go to the big city, Juneau. Um, so I come in, and I'm kind of tired of pretending to be a teacher, so I'm going to pretend to be a carpenter. And I go up, and I find, and it's in the 80s, and there's lots of building going on. And I meet a man named Don who's building a uh, forest edge condominiums. So I go up, and I interview, and I kind of elaborated. Not a George Santos kind of elaboration, but I kind of elaborated on my resume, and he hires me, and he handles me the paper, and I start filling it out. We're just chit-chatting on, this is a Friday afternoon, I'm going to start Monday. And I say, uh, okay, here's the paper. I hand it back to him, you know, W-2s. And I said, uh, one little thing, I've got to leave after this first week because I've got a job from an old client in Spain for two weeks, and then I'll be back because who, who the heck would give up a, a job in Spain? So he said, no, you're fired. And I said, I've only been here 15 minutes. You can't fire me yet. And he goes, no, you're, you're fired. So I walked off, and then I had to change your heart again that weekend. I said, I'm just going to go to the job with my tool belt on. And I walked on to the job, 7 o'clock Monday morning. I said, who's the foreman? They said, Peter. I gave him the paperwork that Don had thrown back at me. I said, Peter, next time you're by the office, will you hand this in? At lunchtime, we sat down on the tailgate of a truck had lunch, and I said, oh, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. I got a job uh, overseas. He said, you lucky son of a gun. I'll see you when you get back. Merry Christmas, everybody. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on December 12, 2023. The theme was Changing Your Mind. Do you have a story you'd like to tell? To find out the dates and themes for our upcoming shows, visit us at mudrooms.org. Our next storyteller is Kaylee McGooey. She is a seasoned portrait photographer with nearly two decades of experience capturing the essence of individuals through her lens. Beyond her artistry, Kaylee is a dedicated single mother to incredible twin girls. I think they're here with her. Infusing her life with joy and the challenges of parenthood, her love for the weird and wonderful aspects of the world reflects in both her personal and professional pursuits, creating a unique and deeply felt perspective in her photographer. Kaylee is not only an expert in freezing moments in time, but is also deeply passionate about navigating life's journey with a commitment to finding the middle path, embracing the ever-changing balance and harmony life has to offer. Kaylee, come on up so that your kids can see your other skills. Okay, so tonight I am going to talk to you about my lovely journey of deconditioning from my fundamentalist upbringing. So, <laughs> when I was a child, I grew up military and conservative, and I was about eight years old when I was in class eight years old, just like you. And I was listening to our teacher and she was bringing up science. And on this day, we were talking about evolution. Now, I don't know if you know anything about fundamentalism, but you do not believe that there is a Big Bang or that there were dinosaurs or that the world is millions, billions years old. You, <laughs> you believe it's 7,000 years old, 
and it's very clear through it. So I stood up, and I was just, my fist was in the air, and I was like, why are you lying to us? And I start like streaming tears down my face at my teacher, like, how could you blaspheme to us? So then, after I'm having this thing, she calls my mom, and she's like, hey, so we had a thing with Kaylee in class today, and she was really upset about evolution. So I, I myself was just sitting there, like, listening to my teacher and looking at her like, how could my 24-year-old perfect teacher be lying to us? So then fast forward to that just being the moment where I was just like, this is it. This is my, this is my crusade. I am here to fix the planet. My savior complex was deeply ingrained. So <laughs> I grew up in church, and I was going to youth group. I became a youth leader, a youth pastor. I was going to different pastoral camps where we would basically practice being a pastor. And that was just my whole entire experience of the world was Christian, white, military, and, of course, just extremely conservative. So I don't know if you can tell, but... <laughs> I might be a little different now. So, <laughs> so I ended up going to India when I was 17 years old as a missionary after I graduated high school. I thought this was the best idea. My parents told me college, and I was like, absolutely not. I'm going to go save all of the people of the planet. It is my job. I will be the one. So I started in India, the most different place that I could possibly go. So <laughs> I landed in Delhi and I was so excited, and there was 14 of us, and we were gonna go work in orphanages and leper colonies. And I land in India, and everything that I ever believed my entire life was flipped on its head in like two seconds. I landed, and there was tuk-tuks, there was no direction of roads, like everybody was all over the place. I was like holding on for dear life as our driver was driving us around, like, where am I? And after about a month of this, because I was there for a few months, I realized that everything I believed about my God was completely different here. I was seeing people with the most beautiful culture, and I was seeing every religion represented, and I just couldn't fathom anymore holding on to this idea of one way. And it really took me on a massive unraveling journey of just falling to pieces in India and asking a million questions and really just trying to soak everything up piece by piece. And my mind was consistently changing. So when Taylor asked me to do this, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the story I have to tell. Because every step along the way was a moment where I had to choose what to think, and where to look, and how to perceive the world. So as I continued my path in India, and I started working with people that had leprosy, there was a man named Elipan. And in leper colonies, you know, in Hinduism, they believe that they need to live out the karma they were given. So they can't take medications to change these things. So that's why we're in this colony, and he has pictures all over his house of his different deities. You know, he's got Shiva and Vishnu, and then he also has 
Mother Teresa and Jesus. And I remember like looking at his house and just recognizing the beauty of being able to hold many things as true at once. So I, from that moment, fully started to shift and change. And as I came back from India four months later, I continued the unraveling process. And I looked in every single direction for answers, leaving the church. And I told you I'd get distracted by that every time. <laughs> uh, and as I was coming home and learning all of these new things, coming back to a world that felt completely foreign, I was able to really take these steps and recognize that changing my mind was actually a superpower and it was really exciting and something that I wanted to continue doing. So I, yeah, I just kept kind of looking at these different paths and I, seriously, you guys, I did, I did everything. I was like atheist for so long. I was agnostic. I was Buddhist. I did nature healing. I was choosing Ayurveda. I went to every single outlet that I could and each time felt like that change of mind became deeper and deeper part of like that superpower. So that is the person that I am today, pretty much. And uh, that's my story. <laughs> okay, to bring us back to Christianity is Pastor Terry Stage Harvey. Um, Terry serves as a Lutheran pastor at Shepherd of the Valley. She moved with her husband and three kids to Alaska in 2008 from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where she served two congregations. Her passions include feeding people, hiking, and juggling. In 2017, she worked with a group to start a Family Promise affiliate to walk with families who are experiencing homelessness. And she likes to sleep with her head covered and her feet exposed. It explains a lot. Please welcome Terry. I like have nothing religious to say. I was smitten by a boy named Brandon. Oh, he had the best 80s hair ever. Huge, dark, wavy. My college roommates called him the Italian stallion. We would always go to the Greek restaurant across the street where Sophia, the owner, would come out and stroke his beautiful hair. They had a pizza that wasn't on the menu, that was just for us. I thought we were a thing. I mean, it was the early 90s. We didn't really process feelings or thoughts. We just made assumptions and went with them. And I assumed that he was in love with me like I was in love with him. So I graduated, we went on, I did some traveling, I came back, I visited him in Virginia. I'm like, yeah. Someday we're going to be together. And I went to Florida to see my parents. Um, and these were the days where phones had cords. So when Brandon called me, what you could do for privacy was go as far as a cord let you. So there I am on the back porch, on the concrete, leaning up against the sliding glass door. When Brandon tells me, I have finally met the person who helped me get over my high school sweetheart. 
I'm like, yeah, me. <laughs> but it wasn't me. And I don't know if your heart has ever been broken and what you experienced in that, but my immediate reaction was I wanted to vomit. And then it felt like every cell in my body exploded. And that my heart just shattered in a million pieces. And I had nothing to say until I did. And I listed every way that I wished him harm, <laughs> including just to date it being shipped off to Yugoslavia. It was not one of my more pastoral moments, but I wasn't one then. <laughs> I am. Um, I. <laughs> I don't want you to worry, even though my love life was a mess, I had my life together and my plan. I was going to go and be a youth director. This is kind of the thing to do when you think you should save the world or whatever. Um, I was gonna do this. I had one more hoop to jump through and then I'd have the job that I always imagined I'd be doing. And it was to go to camp with senior high kids. What could go wrong? So I go back to Ohio, I get into a van full of senior high kids with my heart shattered in a bazillion pieces and we drive to Minnesota together. If I didn't hate them before, I was feeling it then. And then we go to camp and much the same, there's a lot of theology that got out there and I'm like, wow, yeah, I don't really believe a whole bunch of that. And then I had this sweet tent mate Oh, the sweet high schooler, 16 years old, Kim. Um, she was bubbly, bouncy, beautiful. And she had an admirer within the first couple days. And he would come and bring her flowers. And then he'd make her this crap, craft thing, I meant. <laughs> and he would bring that to her. One morning, oh, one morning before dawn, he was knocking on our tent so he could wake her up and they could canoe and watch the sunrise. <laughs> Sweet Kim came back and I might have said something like, oh, he's so kind. And one day he will rip your heart out and stomp on it. <laughs> I decided against youth work. And I ended up volunteering on the death row in Georgia. Um, so I worked down in Georgia for a while. And you know what? Nothing heals a, a broken heart like working with folks on death row. It puts everything in perspective. And um, then I got this gig in Angoon, Alaska. And headed home to Ohio uh, for a week between Georgia and Alaska. And I'm in church, and I look out, and there is a hottie. He looks vaguely familiar, and he's at Bible study that night, too. There was free food. I go anywhere for free food. And uh, we ended up going out. I tell my kids that if coffee cost as much then as it does now, they would not exist. Because that night, uh, we went out for the bottomless pot of coffee for 99 cents till 4 a.m., and every night that week. And then I moved to Alaska and Goon. And I won free tickets on Mark Air. 
So I sent one to him so he could come visit me the day that Mark Air goes out of business. Um, <laughs> he does ultimately make it up there, and we're having that conversation, you know, when you first meet someone and you're still learning all that stuff about him, and we're talking, and he tells me about when he broke up with Kim. Oh, you do look familiar. <laughs> Immediate reaction was, ha, huh, I was right. <laughs> but I was a little more mature at that point. I used my inside voice, inside my head voice. What I do realize, there wasn't really any changing of my mind in that. But what I realize is a broken heart kind of thrusts us on a path that we never wanted to take. And I suppose what I realize is that whole thing of, okay, you can get mean and hard in that, or you can let it open you up. And love somehow still finds us. So my last kid is, uh, well, so it's been 28 years, three kids later, and we're still in it to win it. Um, and, <laughs> but the last kid's a senior. And I make every kid go to my alma mater in Virginia. So we go, we have dinner with Brandon and his partner, Greg. <laughs> Suddenly, everything makes sense. <laughs> At the Parthenon, where Sophia still remembers our pizza and strokes his hair. And you know what? If anyone had told me when I sat there on that stupid concrete with my back up against a sliding glass window, that someday I would be okay, I would have slapped him. <laughs> but there we were, sitting in that place, surrounded by love. I must say amen. Tonight's final presenter is Pam Garcia. Pam is a dear friend of mine who lives on the island kingdom of Douglas. Um, Pam has lived in Juneau for over 40 years and hopes to die here, but not soon. She was a fiddlehead waitress back in the day. She's a longtime school teacher and now private tutors and teaches restorative yoga. Her greatest loves are her husband, Steve, who's here tonight, three kids and three grandchildren. Pam, come on up. Hey, well, my story is going to be about fire, forgiveness, and rekindling relationship. My twin sister, younger brother, and I watch as my father pulled out of our driveway in his Mercury marquee, probably for the last time. I felt so heavy, sad. I didn't know when I'd ever see him again. Days and weeks passed by. I don't recall which happened first. Was it listening to my mom sobbing night after night behind her closed bedroom door? Or was it the time I witnessed my mom and grandma out in the backyard starting a fire? This wasn't no marshmallow roasting type of campfire either. This was a Mexican-style divorce fire. They had gathered my father's remains, you know, leftover clothing and random items, and set it all ablaze. 20 years of marriage up in smoke. Their sadness and anger fueling each other. Somehow they knew the fire would move their pain. Eventually, life resumed as it does. 
Occasionally, we'd get a random box from my dad in the mail, treats from Mexico, candies and cajeta and chili lime chips, things we couldn't buy in the USA back then. I mean, this was the 70s, way before Amazon.com. Were those surprise boxes enough? Hmm, probably not. But at least we know he hadn't totally forgotten his kids in California. I had a pretty great teenagerhood. I did good in school. I had lots of friends. Once in a while, we'd ditch school and go to the beach, drink a little, smoke a little pot. Nothing too crazy. I didn't have any daddy issues, per se. I wasn't promiscuous. I wasn't hanging out with older men trying to find a father figure. I mean, once in a while, I'd miss my dad, but I had adapted. I just got used to not having him around all the time. A few years after high school, when I was 21, I fell in love and was going to get married for the first time. I remember my super nice, well-meaning future in-laws giving me a look of pity when they found out my dad wasn't going to be able to make it to the wedding. Hmm, I felt their judgment. Whatever, it's not like everybody comes from a perfect family. I mean, I was disappointed. Sure would have been nice to have him there. But I figured it out. I got my older, super cool motorcycle riding cousin coming to walk me down the aisle. It all worked out. About four months after the wedding, I gave birth to my first child. Yeah, yeah, you math geniuses. I was pregnant during my wedding. Anyway, one night, we're relaxing on the couch. I'd had a beer, you know, it was the going recommendation to bring the mother's milk down. And I was nursing my beautiful boy when I began to think, hey, there is no way a parent is going to forget about their child. I mean, my dad and mom had raised us for almost 14 years. And they had gone through the extra effort of adopting us when we were two months old. It's not like we had been accidents for them. They had really wanted us. So, hmm. After that beer buzz breastfeeding baby epiphany, I decided I needed to write a letter. You know, the kind that you spill your guts out on. I, you, ah. And I mixed in some tears, threw it in an envelope, and mailed it off to my dad. Well, sometime later, I ended up having a phone conversation with my dad. I can't remember if he had called me or if I had called him. But regardless, between that conversation and subsequent others, I began to change my mind. I had learned things hadn't been that easy for my dad. He had left and he had had to start all over again. He had remarried and had two boys back to back, one year apart. He had opened up a little Mexican restaurant during the 80s, the recession. So selling two enchiladas, rice and beans for $1.99 barely afforded him enough money to put food on his own table. And as far as staying connected with his kids, you know, that was before cell phones. So calling us would have been a little awkward. He would have had to call the house phone. My mom or grandma might have answered the phone. Hmm, let's see what that would have been like. 
Hello. Oh, hi, Rick. How you doing? How's the wife? How are the two boys? That's great. Oh, me? I'm doing great. You know, working full time, raising those three teenagers mostly by myself. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, thanks for the zero dollars of child support you're sending me every month. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, there was a reason why those phone calls didn't happen. Anyway, as we rekindle our relationship, it was really great to get to know my dad. Me and my son traveled to Laredo so he could get to know his first grandchild. Years later, all three of my kids and I traveled with my dad. We had great vacations all over Mexico and Costa Rica. I even went on trips with my dad and his wife. We went to Spain and Italy, having so much fun. And then, my mom died. And my dad came. He was there for the funeral. He came to pay respects to his ex-wife and to be there for his kids. That was really amazing. I remember being on my mom's bed and just overwhelmed with grief, crying my eyes out. And my dad was there offering me comfort. Then later, on another year, my family came together again, but this time for a happier occasion. My daughter was getting married, and my dad wanted to be there for his granddaughter's wedding. Oh my gosh, we had so much fun drinking tequila and dancing the night away. My dad had always loved dancing. Lastly, one of my most favorite moments was when my dad came all the way to Juno with his wife and one of his sons. He came all the way up here, despite being in his late 70s and having a heart condition, to be here for my second wedding. He wasn't there for the first time, but he made sure he was going to be here my second time around. I still remember his shining face walking down that muddy path at Methodist camp and joining our circle with me and Steve and all our kids and all our Juno friends. And my dad was there. He had always been there. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on December 12, 2023. The theme for the evening was Changing Your Mind, and proceeds went to the Juno Montessori School. Special thanks to Kunahiri Northern Light United Church, the Rookery, and COPA for supporting the event. Thanks also to Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And of course, to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us on January 11th for our next show with the theme of What the Hell Am I Doing? This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Bus, Jeffrey Smith, Crystal Brulette, Skylar Bayer, Kristen Rankin, Taylor Beard, and me, Summer Custer. Have a good night. <laughs>